Hello and welcome to Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're talking about the International Man Booker Prize, the shortlist of which has just recently been published, and I shall start by reading that out. First is Virginie Despont's Vernon Subutex 1, published by the Maclehose Press from France. There's Han Kang's The White Book, a South Korean novel published by Portobello Books. Then the Hungarian Laszlo Krasno Hawkeye's The World Goes On, which is Tuscar Rock Press. Antonio Munoz Molinas, the Spanish writers, Like a Fading Shadow, also Tuscar Rock. There's Ahmed Sadawi, the Iraqi writers Frankenstein in Baghdad, which is published by One World. And Olga Tokarczuk's The Polish Writers Flights, published by Fitzcarraldo Editions. And I'm joined this week to talk about this and the joys of translation and literature and translation by Boyd Tonkin, who I think I'm right saying is a former chair of the International Booker. 2016. 2016, that's right. And by Frank Wynne, who's a translator from Spanish and French and who is also one of the translators on this list, who's shortlisted for his translation of Virginie Dispont's novel. So welcome both. I'd like to start by asking kind of what's probably quite a general and maybe too general a question, but I'll give it a shot anyway. Does this list tell us anything particular about the state of translated fiction as we're looking at it now in English? Well, I think it shows that the state is a lot healthier than it has been in previous years, certainly 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, I should say that that although I chaired the prize two years ago, I had no idea what was coming on the shortlist, so it was as much a surprise (laughs) to me uh, as to anyone. And I think it's remarkably strong, it's remarkably varied. It bears out the way that uh, translation has deepened and broadened in the UK market over the last decade. It now goes further geographically and culturally than it did, in other words, a a long way beyond Europe. But at the same time, it goes into different genres, different kinds of writing. So I think the, the picture of the world being presented to English language readers of translation has a good deal more range than it did in past periods. Frank, does that accord with your experience? I mean, you've been translating for quite a long time. Have I've, things changed? Yes, I've, I mean, I've been translating for 20 years, and 20 years ago, um, the impression within publishing of literature and translation was that it was difficult, but it was mostly difficult because publishers decided it was difficult. And they would, you know, regularly comment, well, you know, you don't know if you can get an author over to do interviews and will they be able to speak, you know, about this, that and the other, to which eventually one could always say, take Stieg Larsson. Not only is he foreign, he's dead. Uh, And nonetheless, the books worked. I think it was a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, but there was also, and this echoes what Boyd is just saying about depth and range, there was also a sense that there was something slightly elitist about fiction and translation, as though somehow foreigners, when they write books, you know, fill it with, I don't know, education or knowledge or wisdom or something like that, and that somehow a book had to be so good in order to be translated that, you know, broadly speaking, we were looking for masterpieces or nothing. I think what's wonderful now... Small presses have contributed to this, but also, I mean, the emergence of younger translators translating from non-European languages has meant that we have a much wider range, not only of languages and being covered in cultures that we have a glimpse of, but actually just of a range of books that can actually also make you 
laugh or smile wryly. They don't all have to be harrowing. Yes, there is some difficulty on this list. The Tokarczuk bowl account is quite quite a sort of challenging experimental piece of work. We know Frankenstein by Dad, which Boyd reviewed, it sounds like sort of partly a romp, but also kind of complicated sort of genre mashup. And Lazano Crespo Hawkeye is notoriously quite rebarbative in his style. I mean. mm. Well, I mean, stylistically, they all have their styles. I mean, actually, I found flights incredibly easy to read. It is experimental in as much as it is a set of what. Olga calls constellations, which the reader then draws themselves from one to another and makes their own connections between them. Krasnohorka has a very complex style in terms of um, the sheer density of, of his prose. I find it miraculous. I mean, George Shirty's translation of Satan Tango is one of the great miracles of the modern age because it should be impossible to translate that book, but any translator who's not prepared to take on the impossible shouldn't be doing the job. Is there a sense in which there are certain languages, do you think, that are more, or sort of maybe literary traditions in other languages that are more obviously or easily congenial to English? I mean, well, you know, I, are there I, some that go easy? Well, uh, absolutely, of course. That There are several centuries of history behind this. There is the fact that, that modern English has a large proportion of French words in it anyway, so clearly the relationship there has always been close. Italian to a very large degree. After all, English literature as we know it begins with Chaucer, more or less translating from Italian. German in the modern period, certainly since the Romantic Age for the past two centuries. Then in the late 19th century, this is an incredible affinity between the dominant currents of British literature and the Russian classics, which was mediated by great translators, in particular Constance Garnett, who turned people like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky in her versions virtually into part of English literature. But her husband, of course, also had a huge part, didn't yes, he? Yeah. Turgenev was his great kind of benchmark yes, for what a novel yeah. should be. So there are affiliations and connections that uh, in some cases are extremely deep and extremely long-lasting. And on the other hand, you have the extraordinary case, for instance, of our 2016 winner of the uh, International Booker, Han Kang from South Korea, translated by Deborah Smith, a brilliant young translator, who virtually decided deductively after she graduated and she was looking for a translation specialism that there must be a strong current South Korean fiction scene. But of course, if you read English, you had no idea that that existed because there was virtually nothing. So almost like determining that the Higgs boson must exist, Deborah uh, determined that, that there must be an undiscovered wealth of contemporary fiction. Was she a Korean? In Korean. No, she, 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 she had no knowledge of Korean before she started learning the language in order to translate. And she did so absolutely brilliantly. So she effectively discovered this terrain, which was out there waiting for English readers to venture into it. But until she began, and maybe one or two other p people now, uh, it was more or less totally invisible, like a lost planet. Well, that is one of the, I mean, touches on one of the curiosities of translation. There is that sense in which with people like Constance Garnett, sometimes it's one translator who sort of midwives or starts to midwife an entire literature yeah. into English. 
I mean, what are the effects of that? Um, they can be extraordinary. We have to remember that actually there was a time when the English language was more receptive to translation and when most authors also translated, and not just Pope doing Homer in sort of rhymed Alexandrian couplets, but Tobias Smollett did a new translation of Don Quixote because he quite rightly understood that Don Quixote was the sort of book he would have written himself. It had already been translated by James Mab in 1630 or thereabouts, but there were were lots of people who routinely read each other, translated each other. There's a wonderful paragraph in Milan Kundera's uh, The Curtain, where he talks about the fact that Lawrence Stern is responding to Diderot and that Stendhal is, re- is mirrored in George Eliot and so on and so forth. These are literatures that actually have grown up alongside each other. The great Russian literature that Constance Garnett was translating was hugely influenced by the realism of Madame Bovary, uh, by Balzac, etc. And in turn then influences English. And one of the things that I love is that when people talk about that most objectionable of all phrases, world literature. What they mean is difficult foreign books I haven't read. What they don't mean is Tolstoy or Balzac or Les Miserables or whatever, which we've somehow adapted in the same way that when we talk about world music, we mean Zanakis, we don't mean Bach. Yes. But actually, you mentioned the Milan Kundera essay, The Curtain. It's also, I think, in that essay that he strikes that line about the parochialism of large nations versus the parochialism of small ones. And... Do you think that there has been a sense in which sort of as the English novel really took off in a huge way in the sort of you know middle of the 19th century you could say we became you know a parochial large nation and we stopped reading foreign writing in the same way is that uh, to an extent we did uh, the the secondary thing that happened is that quite by accident a very large country that had speakers of multiple languages decided on english as their lingua franca and writing in america and audiences in america suddenly meant that actually our need to read in other languages was diminished we could we could feel that we were somehow self-sufficient. Do you think it's significant that I think every one of these publishers is, and MacLeod's Press is an imprint of Quercus, but they're all independents or small presses? Absolutely it is, because so much of the heavy lifting for translation in this country is done by the little guys who really do, in every sense, these that terrible cliché punch above their weight. There are good practical reasons for this, because if you're a small publisher, you will find that there are really great authors available for translation, for rights fees which are not extortionate, and compare that to the situation for, say, American bestsellers, which will really cost you an arm and a leg. So small publishers can have access to extremely high quality authors in translation. Obviously, there is also the additional cost of the translation itself, for which there is sometimes external support available from embassies and cultural institutes and the like. But the field of translation, although it's often really pursued by publishers who have a a genuinely altruistic interest in widening the scope of literature available to readers here. It allows them access to the big league in the way that would not be remotely possible with English language stars. Yes, I think Fitzgeraldo, which is represented on this list, famously snapped up Svetlana Alexeyevich about two months before she won the Nobel Prize. Two weeks. Um, Two weeks. It was was preposterous, but uh, brilliantly done. But actually, 
In the UK, certainly, this has always been the case. In the US, university presses have done a lot of heavy lifting uh, and charitable presses. But the great post-war publishing industry here, George Weidenfeld, André Deutsch, Peter Owen, William Heinemann, these were publishers who didn't primarily publish translations, but they published a lot of translations as they were gradually absorbed into conglomerates. While the imprints may still exist, actually, everything is down to a balance sheet now. Everything goes to a sales meeting and the sales department says, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, I can't sell this, it's a translation. I can't sell this, it's, you know, too obscure, it's too whatever. And that's, you know, one of the realities of being part of a very large publisher. What Jacques Destard can do with Fitzgeraldo is say, I am publishing this and this and this and nothing else. This is my focus. What uh, Pyrene Press can do is focus on novellas in translation and find what it is that, that they want to do. The worrying thing will be that, of course, the more successful they are, the more likely, as, say, Harville once upon a time was, you know, which was where Christopher McElhose was before, gets bought into Random House. And while it still does some translation, it does much less than the period when it was publishing everything from Henning Mankell to, to Murakami. We have particular kind of favourite genres with favourite languages, don't we? I mean, you mentioned Stieg Larsson. There's a sort of sense in which, and I don't know how much this is a thing of publishers or or the congeniality of the translators or what it is, but, you know, we love Scandi crime. And there's a sort of sense in which a lot of the stuff that comes from Scandinavia is expected to be crime. Is there a sense of sort of cherry-picking genres in that? There is. I mean, at the moment... Quirky magic realism. At the moment, um, if you were born, you know, any time after 1970, anywhere in Scandinavia and want to write anything, then go write a crime novel. Someone's bound to buy it. Actually... That, of course, dries up. Not every Scandi crime novel or, or Icelandic crime novel is great. It so happened that actually it was a very new twist on the sort of crime novels that we had. It was bleak, it felt a little more metaphysical, and also crime readers, more than anything, like what the French call des they like to, to be put into a different environment, a different place, because actually the elements of the story, how it's constructed and how a crime is solved and so forth, all remain the same. So they have that wonderful thing that W.A. Jordan said of, you know, they have the familiar on the one hand and, uh, and the new on the other. But yes, we do th- we expect French literary writing to be sort of highly polished, sort of in the model of Marguerite Duras in, in, in the sort of 60s and 70s. And we do have particular things that we expect of literature. One I mean, of do, you things- think we, do you think that the literatures we see from these different countries faithfully represent the literary scene there? Or do you think we're kind of seeing through I, I, people? I think that all depends on the intelligence of the publisher. Very often it doesn't, because publishers are seeking to do what they think will satisfy readers here, which is to confirm their expectations. And obviously there was a particular blight which affected the perception of Latin American literature for a couple of decades after Gabriel Garcia Marquez, that it all had to be about clouds of butterflies and um, levitating opera houses and uh, such like wonders and marvels. And of course there are entirely separate traditions in Latin America, some which are highly metaphysical, some which are very grittily realistic. And if you look, for instance, at Colombian writing, there was a distinct backlash against the perception of magical realism. And it means that the the best Colombian writers today are operating at an entirely different register. They include people like, like, uh, for instance, uh, Juan Gabriel Vazquez, um, anti-magical realism in some respect. And publishers here are now recognising that these other voices need to be represented. But certainly... 
It's like what they say in economics, that if you're, that the land under your feet in a particular country is full of diamonds, you have what's called the resource curse. In other words, your most successful export turns into, into something that, that blights your society because people, you're, you become known for one thing and it means that, that, that you can't develop other specialities. And there's always a danger of that with translated literature, but again, it depends on the nous of the publishers and also their intelligence gathering operations, their ability to work out what's going on, what is interesting and what is new. There's also the, I mean, this exists not only in publishing, but in filmmaking and in a variety of other things. People think that what will work is what worked previously, whereas actually you can't unring a bell. The first person who did X has now done X. Maybe the second one will work. Maybe three or four other writers doing something along the same lines will work. But otherwise, you're just... I mean, at the moment, one would hate to be a Japanese writer trying to get published in English if you didn't have a mystical cat somewhere in your book. Um, because for some reason, and partly Murakami's fault, you know, cats plus Japanese at the moment. Whereas in the 1970s, Japanese fiction was Mishima, alienation... Um, more French. Yes, indeed, absolutely. <laughs> You've said translators should attempt the impossible, or you shouldn't be the game. What, as a translator, when you come to a text, what are the hard bits and what are the easy bits? Well, the, the thing that people sort of assume is that the more, say, stylized or poetic a voice is in a novel, the more difficult the novel will be to translate, which isn't true. I mean, it may take you two or three months to find the voice, but once you found the voice, the voice then answers all the other questions that you need to ask. Actually, a flat voice is much more difficult to, to deal with. I mean, translating Michel Welbeck many years ago, somebody came up to me afterwards and said, I found the style very flat. And I said, it took me a lot of work to make it that flat. Because there is a natural tendency, because of course this is an act of recreation, to have quite nice sentences. But his sentences are quite deliberately not nice. They are clunky and they are lumpy, and you have to respect his style in doing that. I mean, the obvious things that are tough are dialect, because there was a time... So in the, in the 19th century, in the first translation of Jules Verne's Journey to the Centre of the Earth, which begins in Hamburg and goes from there to the Faroe Islands and then to Iceland and so on and so forth, uh, the English translation uh, begins in Aberdeen, all of the characters have different names. There is an additional little moral chapter that has been inserted into it. That sort of free adaptation of being able to completely change and rewrite doesn't exist. But there is a real danger with, if I'm translating, as I am at the moment, a book set on a farm in the south of France that spans the 20th century... I can't use a Somerset accent or a Welsh accent or even an Irish accent. That is not... But I nonetheless need to find a vernacular for these characters that places them still within France without them having no character at all to their voices. And that can be really tough. Can I ask, Frank, whether when you're aiming to do this, that one of the methods might simply be to leave dialect French words... Yes, I do. I do, regularly. And in yes. fact, on occasion, I have back-translated, so in both in Amadou Kuruma's novels from the Ivory Coast and in Boulam Sansal's novels from Algeria, on occasion I went back to the author and said, actually, could you tell me the Arabic word for this or could you tell me the Malinke word for that? Because what I don't want to do is have a West African child referring to somebody as 
auntie, which sounds so preposterously English, but nor do I want to use the French word. So I thought, well, I don't know, what does he call her? So use that. I mean, it's, it's obviously a form of address. It's obvious that um, as long as I, I feel that the reader will understand in context uh, what I'm doing, I think it's the least they can do to make a bit of effort. But also what it means is that you don't end up in this terrible position where it feels as though the whole book has been picked up and transplanted to somewhere else, thereby not only taking out you know, any cultural insight you might have gained, but making it seem somehow more superficial than, than it may have been to begin with. How do you deal with things like cadence or sentence length? If somebody's style is, say, to write long, beautifully cadenced, hypertactic sentences in a language whose syntax is very different from ours, do you just have to try and find an English analogue to it? Or do you say, we're going to do... You need, you need to look at the book and decide in a case where actually the cadence and the sentence length is crucial. I mean, you cannot cut Proust sentences. You cannot. They are like matryoshka dolls. They are a nest of embedded clauses and subclauses. And actually, if you pare them down, they are still saying a single and unique thing. And part of how it works, Krasnohorkai is doing something similar in the way that, that, that he uses language. On the other hand, both French and Spanish tolerate very long sentences that are not, in fact, what we would call sentences. It is just repeated use of the word and, and as translators have often joked, the reason that they don't use full stops is you need to use a shift key in order to get to a full stop on a European keyboard. In those cases, actually, you talk to the author and you say, actually, I think that what you're attempting to achieve here is going to be blighted by this four-and-a-half-page sentence uh, in what is otherwise, you know, a terse drama of, you know, whatever, baking. So it really does depend. So sort of English readers will pick up on a comma splice and it will be kind of marked for them, yeah, you know, yeah. whereas Spanish readers won't. No, I mean, Spanish readers will read on and on uh, without... I mean, and they are, of course, mentally still, you know, splicing this into sentences. I mean, all of the ands in the world isn't going to change that. Um, it just so happens that Spanish in particular has a facility to allow that. It, it all, I mean, I have no idea whether it dates back to any kind of oral storytelling, but it almost feels as though it does, that it's an ongoing, an ongoing thing in which actually this four-page thing is not a single sentence. In fact, it should have had you know, paragraph breaks in it and possibly even a chapter break in it. But that's rare. Mostly the way you approach cadence is that, you know, you're... It's one of the, the things that the great translator Eus Grossman talks about, you know, that if fidelity is our noble purpose, it has very little to do with literal fidelity. Because actually, no word on a page sits in isolation. It is around other words, and all of these have both denotations and connotations, but also how they phrase on the page and what they sound like can be crucial. Sometimes it can be absolutely essential that this word has to come at the end of the sentence, as it does in the original, even though in English it's really difficult to get it to do that. Yeah, how much freedom do you think you can give yourself in terms of larger edits, in terms of saying structurally, I think, I mean, obviously if your author's dead, you can do quite a lot. Well, you're, if your author's dead and out of copyright, you can do quite a lot. If he or she is still in copyright, I wouldn't chance it. I think there is an argument that there are many cultures in which the publishing world does not have editors who do structural editing, and I would agree with that based on my own reading apart from other things. On the other hand, once a book has been published in any form, if you are translating it, then the world expects that you are actually translating the book that other people read. I mean, 
if you had a, you know, 250-page Anna Karenina, which was, you know, selected highlights of My Affair with Vronsky, that's not Anna Karenina. I don't think you can post hoc go back and do that if there are flaws in the original book, if it is what Henry James would call a baggy monster, then it needs to be a baggy monster. Now, it will depend on, on the book itself, actually, if it's a thriller. If it's something that a publisher thinks will reach a mass market, I have known publishers to say to an author, I want the facility to be able to do this or that. I want the ability to, you know, and if the author agrees, they do. But it's not a decision a translator would take. I mean, even the, the old, uh, the last truly egregious example, which was The Joke by Milan Kundera, which, when published in the United States in 1968, not only shortened the book by a third, but also shifted all the chapters so they were now in chronological order because the editor didn't like the way that it, that it was so difficult. It took three years before a professor at Cornell wrote a review, wrote a letter to one of the American journals of literature and said, this book that you have been in ecstasies over is not the book that Milan Kundera wrote. Interestingly, it was published... And Kundera clocked this? No, Kundera hadn't, not at that stage. Interestingly, it had been published in a separate translation in the UK, which was entirely faithful to the chronology and, and length of the original. But that was not an uncommon thing to do, to chop up books, to rearrange them, to, you know... What did Kundera do? Because he, I mean... He's notorious for having, having left a publisher on the grounds they wanted to take out his semicolon. And uh, this yes, is... Right. Th- yes, he also sacked a brilliant translator, Michael Henry Hyde. Yeah, indeed. Uh, who was a, the, probably the, the best interpreter and transmitter of his work into English. But then writers' relationships with their translators are often extremely difficult, touchy, volatile. The fault is not always on the translator's side. No, Milan has become very, I mean, this in part because of this, Milan has become very obsessive. The current version of the joke, now in its fifth or sixth notional translation, is in fact a patchwork from other translations that he himself pieced together and no longer features the name of any translator on it. Really? Have you had some difficult subjects? I mean, no, no names, no patchwork. I have had... The best writers that a translator can deal with are either dead or they are themselves translators. So I have dealt with... Javier Serkis, for example, is also a translator. Therefore, actually, he understands what it is I'm trying to achieve, and while he will read the English and possibly make suggestions and ask me questions, and I will ask him questions, he knows that actually the book that I am writing, although it is his book, is my book and that therefore I need to follow the voice that I'm, that I'm using. So he will query me. The worst thing that can happen is that you have someone who has good conversational English, or worse still, a friend who did English at university. And then they will, on a you know piece by piece, point by point, go through individual word choices and whatever, not realizing that you know ever since St. Jerome had his falling out with St. Augustine. It's not about the individual words. You know, it is about the sentences and how the sentences fit into paragraphs and how the paragraphs fit into chapters and so on. And so if you just say, but I really want, you know, this is the lovely Italo Calvino story where he was desperate to include some piece of American jargon into William Weaver's translation of If on a Winter's Night a Traveller. And every time the proofs came back or the revisions came back, 
he would have hidden it somewhere in the text because he desperately wanted it in there. And every time William Weaver would take it out and send it back. And eventually, when the second pass proofs were sent to William Weaver, it was there and William Weaver removed it, sent it back to the publisher, said that it had been passed by Calvino, though it hadn't. But that's the only reason that there isn't some, you know, foolish word like downsizing in somewhere in the middle of If on a Winter's Night a Traveller. So uh, it's quite appropriate to that book, actually. Indeed. (laughs) That's right. Frank Wayne Boy Tonkin, thank you very much indeed for your time.